Good morning. Um, today, um, continuing on in, in Romans chapter 2, um, and uh, as we look at the passage this morning, um, I think at first glance you could probably think that um, Paul's having to go at the Jews. It seems to be a bit of a, like a bit of a racial slur, actually. Um, and certainly many have taken it this way, and I know quite a few people who are really down on the Jews. Like, come on, they had it all. Why didn't, couldn't they figure it out? Like, how dumb are they? Um, however, um, I think the point of these verses is, that, is actually not an ethnic slur, but it's an argument that the Jews, along with the rest of the Gentile world, are sinners like us and are in great need of the gospel. Can this go up? It's, 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 very, it's a very technical piece of equipment here. And, yeah, thanks. Uh, <coughs> can I pause this for a sec? Because it makes me look like... Um, so... Um, We need to remember where Paul's coming from and where he's going to in this book of Romans. Um, He's coming from the great thesis statement in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that Wynne's got up there, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words... The righteousness that God demands from us, but that we don't have and we cannot produce in our depravity, he now makes available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Paul begins the explanation that because of the wrath wrath of God, the gospel is so desperately needed by the Jew and the non-Jew. Uh, first, he looks at the morally corrupt world of the Gentiles in Romans 1, 19 to 32, and he examines the more uh, moral world of people with higher standards. That's the Jews. They have the law. They have this higher standard than what the Gentiles have. And he shows that they too are sinners. Can you imagine for a moment the person with the highest moral standards in the whole world? Excluding Jesus. Do you know that they are just as much in need of the gospel of Christ for salvation as the vilest scumbag that ever lived? Paul here is heading towards chapter 3 verse 9 which says, What then? Are we Jews better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged, we already understood that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The one with the highest moral standard in the world is still under sin. Sorry, Derek. That was the purpose of getting the other lectern, was to get a bit higher. It's my eyes. Um, So the point here is not to isolate the Jews as being uniquely defective. The point is that even their higher standards of morality, even their possession of God's law, doesn't exclude them from the need to hear and believe the gospel of Christ. They are under the power of sin just as the rest of the world is. 
So Paul aims to show that all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, are sinners and in need of salvation that comes through the gospel of Christ alone. So today, reading from verse 17 of Romans 2. But if you call yourself a Jew, and remember they had the highest standard of morality, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, in other words, your life is 100% good because these things are good to do. And I have a tangent. But you know the word, these three words, know his will, does that spark your attention, actually? Know the will of God? I used to ask that God that question like a crack record. God, what's your will for my life? And it was kind of like this premise that my life won't go well and it certainly wouldn't be pleasing to God unless I'm in the right town with the right job, married to the right woman, all of God's will. And look, there's books and articles talking about it all over the internet. Uh, Here's one. It says, what is God's purpose for your life and how to find it? It says, waking up feeling purposeless is incredibly frustrating. You look around, you see your friends and co-workers living passionate, engaged, meaningful lives. They have deep relationships, rewarding jobs and a sense of direction that compels them to hop out of bed each morning with a spring in their step. I prayed for years, God, what is your will for my life? And I know I've shared this before, and I felt God was saying, Rob, I want you to be a Christian farmer. Now, ironically, I was already a farmer. Ironically, I was already married, and ironically, I was already a Christian. It's not wrong to ask God for a vocation, but don't overlook the scriptures. If you have this picture of this idyllic lifestyle with a pretty house and a manicured garden, nice neighbourhood with perfect children, tear it up and burn it. 90% of the disciples were killed for their faith. This, This idyllic picture I cannot find anywhere in the scriptures. His will for your life can be found in scripture. Write it down. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for your life is way more about making you holy than what your vocation or your address is or who you're married to. God is way more interested in developing your Christian character than your wealth. Sorry, that was a complete digression. Back to the passage. If you do these things and you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of truth and knowledge. In other words, you not only live righteously, but you also teach others to do the same. Uh, 
the first group says we have the light, the second group says we shine the light. Verse 21, if you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Hey, what's going on here? While you preach against stealing, do you file false insurance claim? I'm sorry, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, but Jesus said, everyone who looks lustfully at a woman commits adultery in his heart, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? These people were supposed to reject idols. The temples that Paul would have been talking about aren't Christian temples. They're temples of Baal. They're temples of foreign God. And so his people are stealing the staff out of those temples. They're stealing idols. Paul's question for us today, I actually didn't think that little bit was applicable for about half of yesterday. His question for us today is, do you take the idols of the world and make them your own? Do you still idolise the Australian dream, the one I told you to burn five minutes ago? Paul asks these rhetorical questions to which every answer is the obvious yes. And the problem that I have with Paul's interrogation is that I have to answer yes also. Verse 23 uh, says, You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. And I think this is the key verse this morning. The Jews fail to practice the law that they proclaim and therefore will face judgment just like the Gentiles because breaking God's law dishonours God. The essence of sin and evil is not just because they're hypocrites. Evil is, is the feeling and the thinking and the acting that treats God as anything less than infinitely valuable and totally satisfying. In a week or two when we get to Romans 3.23, we'll see that Paul gives his own definition of sin. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The essence of sin is falling short of God's glory. That is, we don't treat God's glory for what it really is. When we sin... We fail to reflect that glory and we dishonour God. That's why we all need salvation. That's why we need a gift of righteousness that's not our own. I cannot stress this enough. If you think you're a pretty good person really, I hate to break it to you, but you're not. You're trying to justify your own manure pile. We have fallen tragically short of God's glory. Or as Romans 1.21 says, we didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him. And 2.23 says, through breaking your law, we dishonour God. But why does Paul dwell on sinfulness? Why not go straight to Romans 8? Why muck about with seven whole chapters talking about the sinfulness of man. 
I mean, let's go to Romans 8. That's the end result, isn't it? Can't we just skip over it a bit? And I think that we need to hear this today um, for four reasons that I can think of. Uh, firstly, the world forces us to... Uh, it forces us not to think about sin. Many churches preach that there's too much talking about sin these days. I'm sure you've heard that preached elsewhere. But this is a pushback from the world, not from the Lord. Secondly, worldly forces urge us to think of sin as an offence against man, not, not, not dishonouring God. When they say evil's when a man is hurt, not when God's dishonoured. Evil's when I'm abused, not when God's dishonoured. Evil is when I'm threatened, not when God is dishonoured. We need to hear Paul's unrelenting preaching of the God-centred understanding of sin and righteousness. And we need to hear it preached unceasingly in our churches today. Only this will prepare us to understand and receive the good gift of God's righteousness. And that's what Paul's on about here in these chapters, is to prepare the Jew and the Gentile to understand and to receive the gospel. The third reason Paul dwells on sinfulness is because the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, simply does not land us as overwhelmingly good news until we have some deeper sense of our sinfulness and our hopelessness before God. John Calvin used terms like total depravity, which helps describe my predicament as a sinner before God. Despite my ability to outwardly uphold the law, there remains an inward distortion which makes all my actions displeasing to God. Whether or not they are outwardly good, or bad. Here I stand as a man depraved, a man who cannot free himself of his depravity. A man who, apart from the cross, is destined from the, for the wrath of God. Without the true state of my sinfulness in view, God's saving grace is no longer good news, but pretty average news. It was for me. Signs and wonders were good news. But grace and the cross, that was average news. I will never fully understand God's mercy if I don't understand my sin. Uh, fourthly, and perhaps the other reason that Paul dwells on our sinfulness for so long, is we're so resistant to seeing it and feeling it. In today's world we see a careless intermingling of a therapeutic worldview and a biblical worldview. One view assumes that our problems should be framed mainly in terms of mental health and therapeutic treatment, while the other assumes that our problems should be framed mainly in terms of sin and righteousness and redemption through Jesus Christ. I was at Kurong Bookshop last week 
And I have to say that just because you pick up a book from the shelf at Kurong doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be Christian. It'll probably be written by a Christian. Um, I have this feeling that Sally hates it as I walk around the shelves and groan outwardly as I see the book Cat Psalms. Prayers my cats have taught me. It was a bit of a giveaway. (laughs) I found some more subtle books like Killing Kryptonite, Destroy What Steals Your Strength. Another book called Honour's Reward, Unlocking the Power of the Forgotten Virtue. If you want to know the authors of these, see me later. (laughs) Think, Learn, Succeed, Understanding Your Mind to Thrive in Life and Here's a good one. Switch on your brain. The, the key to peak happiness, thinking and health. Which definitely talk mainly of mental health and therapeutic treatment and not of sin and righteousness as a core problems in Christian life. <clears throat> one of the most destructive consequences of mixing um, therapy with faith, is a diminished sense of sin. We will always find ways of avoiding the issue of sin, softening the indictments of sin, and escaping the evidence of our own sinfulness. There are endless ways to admit to a little bit of sin, but not being broken and humbled by our personal sin. In the scriptures, over and over again, we see that brokenness and humility in regard to our sin are not only the gateway to paradise, indeed they are the road to paradise. In this life, we'll never outgrow our need to experience brokenness and humility because of our sinfulness. James 4 verse 6 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If it doesn't break us, it doesn't humble us. And if it doesn't lead us to a beautiful trust in his grace, then we've not yet been taught by the word of God and certainly are not fit to teach others the Christian message. Any resistance we have to brokenness and humility will manifest itself in setting each other right rather than repenting ourselves. And finally this morning in verse um, 24 it says, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, this is exactly the opposite of why God chose Israel. He chose them that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise and for glory. They were chose for the honour of God, to display his worth and value, beauty and greatness. But instead, they lived as if their God was worthless and that the world was valuable instead. God handed them over to their enemies and the result was God was ridiculed And his reputation was belittled. Why did Christ come? Why is there a Christian gospel? 
Why is there a book of Romans? Why is there a river life church of Christ? Why a saving of your soul? Here's Paul's answer in Romans 15, 8 and 9. In a direct response to the problem of dishonouring God. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This morning, um, as we prepare for communion, let us remember that the gospel is the good news that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to set this condition right. He came to live the life that we should have lived. He died the punishment for the sins and the naughtiness that we deserve death for. And he gives us his spirit to change us into the people who will value his glory above all things. That's where we are this morning. No one in this room loves the glory of God the way he should. We've all fallen short. We've dishonoured God. We've exchanged his glory for images, for pictures. He's not cherished and treasured and admired and loved with a fraction of what he deserves. So we've fallen short and under the power of sin and we're guilty before God. John 6.53, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. This morning... Let's trust anew in the sacrifice of Jesus, which cleanses us from all sin and trades our filthy rags for his righteousness. As we um, prepare for communion, let us pray. Father, we confess that our lives are a train wreck of dishonour to you. Father, forgive us. Father, this morning, let us, as we take communion, hear your words. You are forgiven, fully forgiven. I pray that you would bless these elements of bread and wine, and as we eat, that we may fully know the grace and mercy that comes through Jesus alone. And I pray this morning that you would fill us with a love for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.